let me, let me begin this way. This is the way I've begun the last two services. Um, when was the last time you were amazed by God? When was the last time you said, wow? And when I think about that question, there's a few things that come to my mind. I think about um, the birth of a child. And I'm quick to say, uh, I'm not talking about my own child. And I don't want some rumors out there, but when I saw the child being born and I held a two-minute-old child, I thought, wow. And I think about cathedrals. Cathedrals just does something to me, do something to me. But a standout for me, them take my breath away, I, I go back to this experience in Western Canada by Lake Louise. Anybody been there? Ooh, a few hands. For me, that was the first time I truly saw a mountain. And across this scenic lake, this huge piece of rock that just looked like a cutout, that looked so unreal, it was real. It literally took my breath away. And I, no joke, um, the word awesome, I didn't use it for like nine months. It was like not worth, nothing seemed worthy of awesome after seeing that, that mountain. It was amazing. You know, Paul, um, actually before I say that, have you guys heard of Carlos Vasquez? Maybe you haven't. But if you've heard of the double rainbow guy, because that's, how, that's what he's known as, the double Hey, slight um, pioneer people. <laughs> I just saw you guys, pioneer church people. Um, welcome. Um, <laughs> um, the double rainbow guy. Anyway, uh, YouTube made him famous. And um, Carlos Vasquez, uh, happened to stumble on a double rainbow in his backyard, this uh, humble farmer from Yosemite. And um, his reaction is caught on video. And when you see, when you hear or see his reaction on YouTube, you don't know whether you, you want to laugh at him or just be really touched by it. And he just, just, just let loose. And many people have asked him if he was drunk or if he was high on drug, and he wasn't. He was just so amazed and excited at seeing a double rainbow. And to this date, his views, uh, the view of his YouTube has billions of views, and it made him famous as a double rainbow guy. So CNN caught up with him two years ago. CNN caught up with him uh, after 10 years just to get you know, his reaction from his fame, from his YouTube video. And this is what he said. He said, um, you know, think about it. This is what Carlos said. He said, think about it. God wanted to send a message to humanity, to this double rainbow in his backyard. And did he give it to a president? No, he gave it to a humble farmer from Yosemite. You know, when the Apostle Paul in 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Paul is having a double rainbow guy reaction. And in English, behold means wow. It was like he was having this amaze reaction. And why is it so amazing? Because here we are, this little speck in the middle of the universe, in this little blue planet, in the middle of an endless universe. And yet, God remembers us and God loves us. Wow. So, a mountain in Lake Louise, a double rainbow, they speak of God's amazing love. Somewhere in the Bible it says that the heaven declares the glory of God. 
And maybe our life speaks also. You know, vocation, I believe everybody has a vocation. I'm sure you believe that too. Vocation, vocation is not just for uh, minister types or pastor types. And in the, in the word vocation, embedded in that word is, uh, is a Latin word, voice. So everybody has a voice. Everybody's life speaks. And actually, that's what I want to talk to you about, right, is how our life speaks. And to talk to you about the life speak, I want to turn to a Bible story that I find every excuse to turn to whenever I can, because I, I'm fascinated by this Bible story. And this Bible story begins with the story of a child of promise. And um, these parents have great expectation about, uh, for him, but, but he turns he takes tragic turns in adulthood. So it's a very human story, as you would imagine from the Bible. It's a very tragic story, but it's also a very hopeful story, right? So before we turn to Genesis 4, we're going to pray. But before we even do that, I'm going to invite you to do something that I love to do. Um, just look at the person next to you as if you... This is a, Yeah, just look at him like you look at him for the first time. I love the way you did that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I just want you to tell them, wow, how God loves you. All right, with conviction. Wow. Wow. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to revel in the love you have for us today. And Lord, as we open your word, uh, we pray that you would reveal yourself and speak to us. Your servants are listening. In your name, amen. All right, let's, uh, in a short time that we have together, let's turn to Genesis 4. I'm going to read it from the screen, and you can listen if you like. Um, so Genesis uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 1, it starts this way. It says, now, now Adam had sexual relation with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd. While Cain cultivated the ground. Did I skip one? When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn lamb from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterwards, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's keeper? So the Bible story begins with this idea of Cain as a child of promise, right? Because his parents believed that Cain was given to them for a very special purpose. And Cain had the privilege of being the firstborn. And being a firstborn was very special. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Right? My parents were firstborn. Right? My father was a firstborn. My mom was a firstborn. My, my grandparents on both sides 
were first born. My great-grandparents were first born. My great-great-grandparents were first born. I hit the jackpot when I was born as a firstborn in a family of firstborn who took the position of firstborn very seriously. You know, growing up, um, you know, whether it was a, a situation of name calling or maybe somebody shoved somebody, you know, my parents would take one of my sisters by the shoulder, literally, and uh, despite their protestation or objection, they would lead them in front of me and say, apologize to your sister and show her respect because she is the firstborn. Yeah. And I would say, bow down. No, I would never do that. <laughs> I never would do that. So they took the rank of firstborn very seriously. And, you know, I've studied this before, and it's only at the time that I studied this that, I, that I, it hit me, something I had never considered before, that um, I was even given my own room while my sisters had to share their room. I even asked them that. I said, what did you think? I mean, how was that for you? You know, in our adulthood, I would ask them that. One of my sisters actually resented it. And in case there are some resentful middle children in our congregation today, middle children haters, uh, I just want to remind you that there's a lot of pressure being a firstborn. A lot of, you know, expectation and responsibility that comes with being a firstborn. It's not easy. <laughs> so in Genesis, Eve, you know, as you, if you remember what we read, made a really big deal with the arrival of Cain, but not so much with Abel. So in, in, in my Bible, in the passage that relates to Abel, you know, there's a concordance, there's a list of texts, and um, the text that, that we redirected to when it comes to Abel is in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And this is what it says. It says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. That's who Abel was. Meaningless, or Hevel, or Abel means nothing or vapor. Can you imagine being born and people having the lowest expectation of your, for your existence as a baby being named after vapor or being named after gas? And some of you maybe have an idea of what it's like to, for people to underestimate you. And for, for others to, or some of you have heard this, she'll never amount to anything. Or he'll never amount to anything. And as some of us have spent our whole life, you know, having people not expect much from you and you spending your whole life proving them wrong. So there's no special declaration when Abel comes into the world. He was in a shadow of Cain and the narrator makes Abel sound like an afterthought. So the Bible says that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And Genesis 4 um, says that in the course of time, and it gives you the impression that this was a habit, right? This was a tradition. So they bring the product of their, of their life work. And um, we're given a hint now as to why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain was not, right? So obviously Abel uh, says that he brought his livestock, so which means most likely his, his offering was fat and juicy and wonderful. And it was also the firstborn of his flock. Now, do you remember the specialness of the firstborn? Abel brought out the best of his flock. But look at the contrast. God was not an afterthought for Abel, but Cain brought some fruit snack for the creator of the universe. What was Cain supposed to do? Because when I was growing up reading this story, you know, well, the first time I heard this story, I was felt sorry for Cain. I kind of felt bad. I mean, what was he supposed to do? He was a farmer. He had fruits and vegetables. 
So what are we supposed to learn from this story? What is the deeper meaning? What are we supposed to be revealed? What is supposed to be revealed about God, about ourselves, about, letting, about uh, choosing to let our life speak? Cain was a somebody, Abel was a nobody, but yet God favored Abel. Despite his genetics, um, despite the fact that he was born to Adam and Eve, God believed that Cain could change. And by the way, Adam is nowhere to be found in this story. Adam is the absent father, but God is a very present and loving father. God is the loving father. Behold the love of God who has the hope that his son could change. And God never mentions Abel, does he? Uh, God gives his full attention to Cain. Cain is so angry because all he wants is God's favor, and yet he has God's favor. God is inviting him to be like God, his heavenly father. And Cain is so much like his earthly father, like his earthly parents. Cain is so much like his mother. His mother wanted to be like God. She bought into the lie and she forgot that she and her husband uh, yet were created in the image of God. Uh, I remember reading uh, research in my Twitter. It came up on my Twitter, you know. Uh, it was from four... Forbes magazine, and it was on, on Facebook. And um, it was a commentary on how Facebook makes people depressed. And uh, I was speaking on Facebook, these people. And uh, the point of the article was that basically people would, would look, you know, go on Facebook, get depressed, because they would look at people's lives and compare their lives and say, wow, their lives are so much better than my life, and they get, would get depressed because they would compare their lives. And they actually gave a name, and they gave a syndrome to that thing, and they called it uh, social comparison. That's the name of a syndrome. And Cain basically had that syndrome. He had a choice. He basically could compare his life to his brother, who represented a failure to be number one, or he could just grab hold of what God was offering. What was God offering? What was God requiring of Cain? And Micah 6 uh, verse 8 tells us, uh, verse 7, we're going to start in 7. And this is what the prophet says to us. Should we offer, who's him? Him is God. Should we offer him thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Or should we sacrifice who? Our firstborn children to pay for our sins. Is that what God requires? Verse 8, no people. The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. Do what is right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. What God told Cain was, what did he tell him, do you remember? To do what is right. And to do what is right would have been to bring a whole other offering, right? To just bring, do the right thing. But it wasn't about the offering. What God wanted from Cain is his whole self and his whole soul, his whole being. What Abel did was a representation of him being sold out for God. He brought his whole being, he brought out his best. Um, Cain kills Abel, it says. You know, not much detail is given of how it happens. 
But the only thing the narrator does, they kept, the narrator kept saying, brother, brother, brother. Just to kind of remind us of how obscene this event is. Just to remind us how abnormal it is. But what we do know is that, you know, it doesn't matter what translation you understand, Cain has a bit of an attitude, right? Am I my brother's keeper? You know, the word keeper, people who would read this uh, at the time that it was, you know, written maybe in, in biblical time would understand that keeper was an attribute of God. And just to show you Psalm 121 verse 5. Some of you have memorized this psalm and will recognize it. It says, the Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. In some translation it says, as your keeper. It's an imagery of a shepherd. God is your keeper. Abel was a shepherd. So Cain maybe was saying, am I my brother's keeper? Most of us would say yes, because we're good people. We want to be God, you know, our brother's keeper. But Cain maybe was saying, am I your favorite? Am I your, am I Abel? Or maybe he was saying, who am I? Am I God? Whatever Cain was asking, there was a separation between Cain and between God. When we're amazed by God's attribute, when we're amazed and wowed by who God is, we are compelled towards reconciliation. We're compelled to be transformed by God's love and we're compelled towards inviting others into that love. When we are not amazed by God and when we are not accepting of God's love, we become instruments of Satan. You know, one of the most uh, popular, most beloved story um, has been through many types of versions, many movies iteration, and I heard there was a new one coming up yet again this year. And uh, I know it's a musical and it's based on a novel set in the 18th century French Revolution. Some of you already know what it is, Les Miserables. Anybody seen the musical? Nobody wants to admit it? Okay. Uh, it's based on a novel. <laughs> it's based on a novel uh, written by uh, Victor Hugo. And um, Victor, Victor Hugo, or Victor Hugo, um, um, hated the church, right? And he couldn't stand the, the so-called men of God. And yet, he wrote in the story, um, a, one of the most popular characters in the story is a priest. So he wrote, uh, if there was such a thing as a man of God, he wrote what he wished a man of God would be like. And uh, the main protagonist, so many of you know the story, but the main protagonist is Jean Valjean. And this man basically um, is released from prison camp. He had gone to prison camp 19 years ago because his infraction was what? He stole a small tiny piece of bread to be able to feed his sister's children who were starving. And for that, he was thrown into this prison camp. And in this prison camp, he was tortured, he was mistreated, and over the years, he be, his heart became hardened, uh, he became bitter, he became mean by the time he was released. So they released him uh, with his convict papers, and he got, comes back into that town, and nobody wants to receive him. They shut the door in his face, except for that priest. Not only that priest opens the door to him, and that priest sets a table and receives him like he's the Pope. He sets a beautiful table for him and he pulls out this beautiful, expensive heirloom candlestick at the table to decorate the table. 
He feeds him well. He pulls out a beautiful bed for him to sleep. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean doesn't sleep. He waits for everybody else to fall asleep. In the middle of the night, he gets up and pulls a knapsack and steals the candlestick. But he doesn't go too far before the soldier catches him and he drags him back to the soldier's, uh, to the priest's home. So when he gets to the priest's home, uh, Jean Valjean faces the abyss of returning back to prison. But then he hears the priest uh, say, why is my special guest in shackles? And to the soldier's surprise, he says, take off the shackles. And he says, um, you forgot, you left in such a hurry, you forgot the rest of your gifts. And he opens up Jean Valjean's knapsack and proceeds to put the rest of the silverware. When the soldiers left, the priest looks deep into Jean Valjean's face with his kind eyes and says, I have bought you back out of darkness. You belong to God now. Do good. The protagonist's story, Jean Valjean, is transformed and his hardened heart breaks for the first time. And for the rest of the novel, he spends his life making life, people's life better. At the end of the novel, he is in the glow of these candlesticks. And uh, he declares at the end of his life, to love another person is to see the face of God. This is the gospel, not from the imagination of a man, but from the mind of God. Who would have believed our message? The gospel is that when a God looks at me and at you, he sees our big brother who stands between the requirement of the law. We have been brought out of darkness and we belong to God. Theologian John Scott said that, Stott rather, said that the cross is where justice and mercy of God collided, but the crash came against the heart of God. So when we look to God, uh, not at people, what they do, what they've done to us, we, our life will speak on the hope of transformation and on our life will speak of reconciliation. Have you been in a situation where you're like going to an, an appointment and you're listening to something in the car and it's so good, you don't want to get out of the car? Well, a couple years ago, three years ago, that was the, what happened. Well, I'm sure it happened many times before, but a couple years ago, this, this is what happened. And I didn't want to get out of the car, but I remembered the name and I said, I've got to get this book. And I remember the name Christian Picciolini. And uh, so I got his memoirs, which was named Romantic Violence, the memoir of an American neo-Nazi skinhead. So now I didn't expect the language to be kind of coarse, that coarse. So if you're sensitive about language, do not read it. Um, but despite it, you know, his life spoke of an amazing thing in terms of God's love. So Christian, who is he? Christian Picciolini. So this uh, guy is a former skinhead neo-Nazi leader. In 1987, he was a lonely 15-year-old without a purpose, without identity, smoking a joint in a corner street. And um, this guy, twice his age, comes around and knocks a joint out of his mouth. And he tells Christian... This is what the capitalists and the Jews want. They want to numb your brain with drugs. Now, Christian is 15 year old. He doesn't know nothing about capitalists. He knows nothing about Jews. But there's this guy who's paying him attention. And this guy gives him an ideology. And Christian will tell you that at first it wasn't so much about the ideology, 
but it was about somebody who gave him a sense of community, a sense of belonging. And before long, Christian uh, raises and in, in, uh, rises up in the leadership of this Nazi organization before, by the time he's 22 years old. But today, Christian Picciolini is based out of Chicago, and he facilitates reconciliation, and he facilitates conversation between people of all ethnic backgrounds. So what in the world, right, um, would turn a fervent, stockpiling, KKK, a hate-filled, racist uh, person to now help young Nazis leave the organization? I had to find out. And there were two things that made the difference. Well, the one thing is fatherhood. He married at a very, very young age. I mean, he started to plant a little tiny seed maybe. When he became a father, he became maybe to see people as somebody's child, maybe. You know, his, his parents maybe were praying for him a little bit that this would happen, so maybe that has something to do with it. But the most important reason why Petrolini's transformation came was because of his brother, Alex. And Alex, whom... Christian nickname Buddy. In his memoirs, uh, he describes his brother. He says, my brother Alex was the sweetest guy you'll ever know, and he loved me. And I was his cool older brother. And Christian also writes, when I was little, uh, Alex would wait for me after school, and Buddy would ask me, when I'm older, um, can I be strong like you? They were really close. So Christian had begun questioning um, his role in a Nazi organization, and he was warning his brother about, you know, using drugs and partying and hanging out with troublemakers. But Buddy kind of waved, waved it off, and he said, well, at least I'm not like a Nazi leader, like my big brother. So one night, Buddy uh, gets into a van with a bunch of friends, and he goes and picks up, go to pick up some cheap street drugs. But what none of them were aware is that his friend, his friends or Alex, is that there were rival gangs at war in the neighborhood. They didn't recognize the van and they began shooting at the van. So Alex did not survive his injury and he died shy of his 21st birthday. Now Pecciolini doesn't elaborate on the death of his brother because it's so painful. But he does say this, and, and we're going to put the quote on the screen. This is what Christian says. He says that I felt as though and I feel now that I am to blame. Uh, his brother, he'd been following in my footstep. But more than that, I felt somehow that his death was retribution for all the violence and the hate I had been projected into the world, for the pain I had inflicted on others because of the color of their skin. And my misplaced idea that by abusing them, I could be somebody. My brother was killed because he was in a car with people whose skin color threatened a bunch of scared, ignorant kids with a different skin color. My brother's death was on me. You know, Christ's death is on us. But the difference is that Christ gave his life. You know, if a human being can have that much impact on another human being. Imagine what a supernatural human being can do. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 17, 18. If you've been at church long enough, you've seen this passage. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself, to Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people 
to him. To belong to the Father compels us to find God's lost children so that they can know him too. And that's what our community is called to do. This is what our community is called to do. So what does it mean for our life to speak? Our life still speak, no matter what our circumstances, our life still speak. And we have template of that. Um, I didn't share this text before, but you know, I know, I'll, I'll just mention Acts chapter six. You know, in Acts chapter six, there's a template. There's a crisis in the church, in a new first century church, in which they are asking themselves, what are we gonna do with the widows? There were widows that were not being fed. And what they did as a church, they established a structure in which they could take care of the widows. Do you know that story? It's in Acts chapter 6. You can read it later if you don't. The church, the Bible tells us that those who are the most vulnerable among us matter. Everybody's life story matters. So the widows didn't have, one could argue they were a burden on society. One could argue that. What could they contribute? But the Bible teaches us that everybody matters. So if somebody doesn't have the trappings of success, if somebody is a widow, somebody is too young or too old or handicapped or divorced or seem to be thrown away, the Bible teaches us that those who are the most vulnerable still have a story to tell. Even before the service, speaking to a young woman who's facing terminal illness, and she was sharing with me, I want my life to be used to its fullest to tell of God's goodness. Our life still speaks. Jesus asked, who is my family? You know, Abel didn't have the dignity of having descendants. Abel didn't have children. When it's those days, it was a particular curse. It was a tragedy not to have descendants, right? Abel didn't have even the esteem of his mother, it seems. He didn't have the esteem definitely of his brother. Jesus asked, who is my family? So Matthew 12, pointing to his disciple, Jesus answered, who is his family? He says, look, these are my brothers. These are my mother. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister and mother. Is doing God's will worth it when everything is going wrong around you? So although God says later in the passage, as we're wrapping up, that Abel's blood cried out for justice when Cain murdered him, the story of Genesis moves along and leaves Cain with God's grace. Yet it points to a future when God's going to make everything right. However, it doesn't mean we stop doing what's right, okay? It doesn't mean that we just wait gazing at the sky. So I'm going to leave you um, why we can persevere and do what is right and why our life speaks matters. So I'm going to leave you with two passages from the Bible, which hopefully will be an encouragement for us. All right. How many passages? Two. All right. All right. The first one is Hebrews 11 verse 4. All right. Hebrews 11 verse 4. Um, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gift. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by example of faith. 
Abel still speaks to us by his example of faith. Abel appeared like he entered, like a fleeting vapor dissipating upon the pages of history. But with God, there's always a glorious, everlasting footnote. Amen? If you forget everything else, if you could remember this one thing, our life still speaks long after we're gone when it belongs to God. What we give to God is forever. What we do for God is forever. Okay, finally, I want you to listen to the rebuke that God had for religious leaders. Okay, these religious leaders were putting people down because they were comparing themselves instead of looking to the Savior. So this is a rebuke, part of a rebuke. Okay, Jesus tells them, as a result of your, you know, putting people down, you will be held responsible for the murder of all of godly, godly people of all time. From the murder of the righteous, who? Abel to the murder of Zechariah. I'm just going to stop there because this is an amazing passage. Amazing because God promises justice. Everything that's wrong will be all right. God promises justice. So we can't be tired of doing what's right. But what also makes it so amazing is that God remembers Abel, even though Abel means nothing. Abel's name does not mean nothing anymore. Abel's name means beloved. Abel's name means God's child, in case somebody here is named Abel. <laughs> Abel is all of us. God will remember us, and God will remember you. Wow. How God loves us. Amen.